Hello, listeners. This is Paul Gregory, SVP and Chief People and Culture Officer at Mitel Networks. We're a Canadian-based telecommunications company with offices all around the world. My goal here at Mitel is to create a company culture that inspires courage, empathy, and kindness. That's where truly transformative change starts. At Mitel, we love how the Lead from the Heart podcast is helping leaders realize their full potential to better serve their people, and we're proud to be their sole sponsor. If you'd like to learn more about Mitel, you can find us at mitel.com forward slash mark, M-A-R-K. Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. A lot of us would like to become more influential because all boiled down influence is the ability to create change, direct resources, and move hearts and minds. But when we think about the influence tactics that we've seen other people employ, we use words like sneaky and manipulative and coercive to describe them. So today, our show is devoted to introducing you to ways to grow your influence in truly profound ways, but also in ways that aren't just powerful, they're deeply ethical. And I'm really thrilled to introduce you to a rather impressive Zoe Chance, my guest for the next hour. Zoe is a professor at the Yale School of Management who earned her doctorate at the Harvard Business School. She once managed a $200 million segment of the Barbie doll brand at Mattel, but today teaches the most popular class at Yale called Mastering Influence and Persuasion. And she's just published a book that's become an immediate bestseller called Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen. Becoming more influential, or being able to communicate better, is of course a huge leadership power. Yet most of us lean on facts and figures to persuade other people when research proves this approach is far less effective than we think it is. Another myth about influence is the idea that asking for more will make people dislike us and make us less influential. But we're about to discuss Zoe's work shows people are surprisingly willing to help when they're asked to, far more than you might imagine. Before I introduce Zoe, I want to give you a quick overview of her foundational idea about how human beings are influenced. It's a reinforcement for one of the recurring themes of this podcast, the idea that we are far less rational than we believe we are. Some research she cites has shown that 95% of our decisions and behavior are driven below the surface by our feelings. Zoe says this instinctual decision-making process is like a gator that lurks below our conscious awareness and is always prepared for immediate action. And when we do slow things down and really apply concentration and effort, she likens this to a judge that deliberates and carefully weighs the evidence. And in a moment, I'll be asking Zoe to explain all of this in greater detail. It was thrilling for me to read Zoe's book and to see more confirmation for what's essentially the basis for the lead from the heart philosophy. And so I'm very excited to drill down into a lot of her conclusions on influence and have her share highly practical ways for all of us to be more persuasive in our careers and within our lives. And with that, I'd like to give you a very, very warm welcome to this podcast, Zoe Chance. Thank you, Mark. Thrilled to be here. Well, I've been really looking forward to this. We had a little preamble before we started the podcast, and I told you that there's something really unusual about you that comes through in your book. And I thought, I really want to start there. So you describe your upbringing as bohemian. 
And that's a description that I thought that's intriguing to me because you've ended up in a really great place and with a remarkable career. And since I'm always interested and I know my audience is always interested in learning what experience helped shape my guest's mind and philosophy, I want to start there. Tell us a little bit about how you grew up. Sure. Sure. And my experience was bohemian and specifically bohemian poor, which I (laughs) personally distinguish from being blue collar poor. And when you're growing up bohemian poor, there is so much less of the cultural baggage that goes along with poverty because you have people around you. In my case, it was some other members of my family and most of the people who were living in my town who were doing far better than we were. You know, that has its own baggage that it's hard to be the poorest person, poorest family that you know or that you hang out with regularly. But it didn't seem like something insurmountable. So parents got divorced, single mom. She was a hippie. She was an art teacher. We lived in a little apartment, one bedroom. My sister and I shared a bedroom. And my mom was the funnest person that we knew. And she just had this incredible, loving, vivacious, optimistic, and spiritually open-minded attitude. So she was always looking for opportunities for fun or for magic and like little things like we didn't have money for even ice cream. And so she would just say, okay, let's walk down the bike trail and we'll look for change from the universe. And we would go to the bike trail and we would just look for change from the universe and we would find it. I don't think you could do that now when ice cream costs more like $5. Right. I don't think you're going to find it. But when it was just change, it worked for us. She ran a summer camp and it was in the summer because she was a teacher and she needed money. And the summer camp was the most fun summer camp. And it was also kind of crazy. And she would do things in a good way. She would do things like take us in groups of four with a counselor in her car. She would drive us to the middle of the woods blindfolded with a topographical map and a compass. She would let us out and she would say, okay, kids, find your way back to camp. And... There was so much opportunity for unexpected things to happen and so much opportunity to do what my mom and her hippie new age wisdom would call creating your own reality that I got to actually have a lot of those experiences as a kid. I've dedicated the book to my mom because she was such an influential figure for me. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's wonderful. You just told that with such joy. And obviously, you're extraordinarily well-educated at the best schools in the world, and now you're teaching at one of the most wonderful schools in the world. Connect the dots. How did her influence help shape you to be the confident, optimistic, resilient, throw-anything-at-me kind of a person, and I'm going to you know, scale that mountain? How did she influence you to be that person? My mom taught me a couple of things that were so important and formative. And one of those was just ask and you never know what you might be able to have or do or be or give if you don't actually ask for it. And the second one was that you can be such an influential person. And this relates to your work. If you lead with warmth and You know, the two big dimensions of social judgment are warmth and competence. But 
warmth is vastly more important. It happens faster, it's stickier, and it just forms a bigger part of our judgments of other people if we lead with warmth rather than trying to prove how great we are. So honestly, one of the biggest things I learned from my mom is just learning how to enjoy myself and other people and like people. And then we kind of figure out how to do stuff together. Oh, well, what strikes me, by the way, I've never heard that language warmth, which I absolutely love. And so later on, I'll have to ask you to share whatever research you have on that, because okay, that's great. very, very cool. But what you just told me is she taught you two things that are principal in your book, this idea, yeah. just ask, and you can be an influence, you know? So did you see that coming? Like, was that conscious that your mom's voice was influencing you to be an expert in influence? You know, I call her my Swami mommy. I've never actually said that to anyone besides <laughs> my family, but she's my spiritual teacher and her guidance and parenting has informed so much of what I do. So I figure out the science behind a lot of the things that my mom already understood intuitively. Wow. What an experience. It's wonderful. Yeah, thank you. I gave a little bit of an overview of this in the introduction, your introduction, about the gator and the judge, because understanding them both is so essential to the rest of what this conversation will be focused on. Could you punctuate what they both mean and what they really explain about human nature? Yes. So first of all, for listeners, the real names for these two systems are system one and system two. So don't, after listening to the podcast, be like, oh, I learned from this Yale professor today about the gator and the judge, because nobody will know what you're talking about. But I use the analogy of gator and judge because it's easy to remember what they are and what they do. And when I've been teaching behavioral economics, it's hard to remember what are system one and system two, and even experts get them mixed up sometimes. So the gator, which is the easy name for system one, is the first responder. So system one, first responder, and it's the primal, instinctual, absolutely fast and largely unconscious system that drives decisions and behavior. All of our habitual behaviors are gator-driven and our emotional reactions, first impressions are super important. So you can't actually quantify the proportion of how much of our decisions and behavior are determined by the gator and how much by the judge. But researchers who study this stuff estimate it's maybe 95% are driven by this unconscious decision-making system. The other system, so system two that I call the judge, is the second guesser, but this only happens sometimes. System one, first responder, is giving emotional, intuitive gut reactions all the time, every second, every day, to everything that comes within your sphere of awareness. The judge, which is slow, conscious, deliberate, effortful, and like a real-life judge, can only focus on one case at a time. This is your conscious attention, can only focus on one thing. And so it's in very short supply. It's very cognitively expensive. And it only actually determines maybe, say, 5% of our decisions and behavior. And in the book, what I write about that doesn't get discussed enough in behavioral economics, and most people even reading about it don't realize that the gator has a tremendous influence on the judge, and that relationship is not reciprocal. So your conscious rational mind 
has very little power over your emotions. Like, let's say there's some food that you hate, right? What's a food that you hate, Mark? Asparagus. Okay, you're crazy, but we'll go with that. <laughs> How could you possibly reason yourself into loving asparagus? No. No, absolutely not. But could you maybe find plenty of rational excuses to never eat asparagus again? Probably, yes. Yes. Right? And even our brain anatomy has this asymmetric relationship where we actually have loads of neurons connecting the primitive brain regions to our prefrontal cortex, far more than we have neurons going in the other direction, which nerds like people who listen to this show might find interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so let me pin a few things down. One is, is that the system one and system two language that you're using comes from Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And Can I just get super nerdy for a second? Sure. It actually comes from Stanovich and West, where the original researchers to coin this terminology, but Danny Kahneman is definitely the one who made it famous. I didn't know that, so thank you. The piece of information that I'm trying to make sure that I interpret correctly is that when our gator is making quick decisions, sometimes you're saying the judge will actually come up with a story to justify the behavior that the gator wants us to make. Is that a good way to explain it? Yeah. This is so important when we're thinking about influence that a lot of us, when we think about reason or logic, we imagine that it has some sort of objective, factual truth behind it. But these are persuasion practices. You have a goal and you're trying to convince somebody of this thing that you want to convince them of. And that's what your brain does with itself. So when you're using your faculties of reason, you are persuading yourself. And you can never not have those gut reactions that might be positive or negative or just these simple habitual behaviors. Anything that you keep practicing just becomes easy to mindlessly repeat. I have some questions about that, but can you give us like a real life example of what you mean there? Yeah, like everybody has had the experience, if you know how to drive, probably if you've had a commute in a car, that you're getting in the car to go home from work. And there's something that you need to stop and do on the way, like, you know, pick up something or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you have already pulled up at your house. And you didn't even consciously, you were not even conscious of driving. And because it, you have such practice with this, that it became habitual, the gator brain, this is an example of the gator brain taking care of the vast majority of all your decisions and behavior. You didn't have to think about it consciously. And it's actually hard to even consciously subvert this. And it's so dangerous to drive, right? right? Yeah. You could kill people and it's really hard. So it takes a lot of conscious effort using the judge part, lots and lots of conscious effort, but through practice, it becomes habitual. So I want to read a powerful paragraph from your book, and then I have another question related to all of this. So you say that because so much gator activity takes place below the level of conscious awareness, most of us have concluded that our rational mind is in charge. One of the things that distinguishes us from every other species on the planet is our ability to reason, and we may make too much of that. Some researchers, as you said a minute ago, estimate that the gator may be solely responsible for up to 95% of our decisions and behavior, which is an astonishing number. And yet it's not easy to accept that the gator plays an outside role in how we respond to the world and to each other, end quote. So when I read that, I wanted to ask you, 
many of us would really love to believe that we're the exception, I think. Yeah. You know, we think, oh, I'm no gator, you know, I'm a judge. And so explain why we have such a hard time accepting that, that we're driving without consciousness and making decisions below the surface and rationalizing them with our judge instead of really thoughtfully thinking through answers and behaviors. Yeah, and I do get this question a lot, especially when I'm teaching some group of people like engineers, (laughs) as you can imagine. First of all, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, okay, I'm not as influenced by the gator, I think, as most people are, that could be true, right? It could be true that, you know, you're an accountant and you spend lots of time in your head in the world of numbers. And maybe you are less influenced by the gator than your five-year-old child. However, what people are getting wrong is that even if you are an accountant who sees yourself as a rational human being, most of the time, actually, you are still far more influenced by the gator. There are lots of research examples of people like doctors and lawyers and those experts that we are depending on to be so careful, logical, rational, objective. In the book, I describe a study with Israeli judges where these are actual judges, even actual judges had their parole decisions being vastly influenced by extraneous factors like, are they hungry, tired, bored, things like that. This research for the nerds, before you quote this research, you'll want to look up what is called the magnitude of the effect into question. It's not as big as the researchers initially reported. But the effect is still there that at the beginning of a session, judges are likely to let a prisoner off on parole. And then by the end of the session, when they've made a lot of decisions, they're tired, they're hungry, et cetera, that there's a huge likelihood that they'll send that prisoner back to jail. In this study, the likelihood was 100% that at the end of the session, the prisoner is going back to jail. So let me take that because I read that in your book and it was like, completely fascinating. And of course, if you're an attorney, you're never going to want to have the person that you're representing be judged in the afternoon when judges are tired of making decisions and tired in general. I want you to tell us how being a gator has influence on an employee's engagement. So in other words, apply the whole idea of influence from a leadership standpoint, knowing that the people that we're managing are operating from a gator mindset, if you will, most of the time. Yeah. The two most important things are how our employees feel and how easy it is for our employees to do their job are two of the biggest factors that are influencing employee engagement and also whether they're going to stick around in their job or whether they're going to leave. There was a study by Gallup that came out recently, and this was a study from last year, looking at between March and October, how engaged were employees in March, and then in October, had they switched to a new job. And what they found was that employees who, and actually, when I said engaged, in fact, the specific thing that they were studying was, are they thriving? And Gallup distinguishes thriving and engagement, but are they thriving? So are they telling you their life is going great? If they're telling you their life is going great, They were very unlikely to switch jobs if they're telling you that their life is not going great. So this is unhappy gator. There's about 
twice as much chance that they're going to switch jobs. And for people who are following this great resignation, so-called great resignation that we're having, the difference between the quitters and non-quitters and who's thriving was biggest among healthcare workers and frontline workers, which are two of the sectors that have seen the most upheaval. It was more important for those sectors than others, how the employees were feeling. So that's just at the simplest level. So pin that down because I'm not sure I'm clear on what was the difference between healthcare worker thriving and not thriving. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I think I told it in a complicated way. (laughs) So if you take, we'll compare a frontline worker to a manager or executive. So for a manager or executive, if you were thriving in March of 2020, Gator's doing great. There's only an 11% chance that you have changed jobs by October, which is still a lot, right? Mm -hmm. But if you were a manager or executive who wasn't feeling great, Gator not so good, there was a 19% chance, so almost double chance that you would have left your job by October. If you're a frontline worker, that difference was magnified so that we have all thought that frontline workers have been leaving their jobs in droves and switching to new jobs. Those jobs are really difficult. However, if you were thriving, there was only a 6% chance you would have left your job. And that's half of the chance if you're a manager or executive. But if you were not thriving, if you were struggling, there was a 26% chance that you would have left your job. So what were the leadership behaviors that led to the thriving? I think that's the big takeaway. So this will just draw on all of the research on leadership behaviors and engagement that you're familiar with and have been going on for a long time. I'm not aware of research that's come out yet specifically about last year of 2020, but we can assume these are similar kinds of things like giving rapid feedback and frequent feedback, having employees feel comfortable that they can come to you with any kind of question or problem. That has a huge effect on employee engagement and whether employees are going to leave their jobs. Their sense that they're growing. So you're investing in them as a person, an employee, and someone who is becoming a leader themselves. Things like this. And psychological safety. You were talking in our earlier conversation about Amy Edmondson's work, psychological safety, which is related to can they come to you with a question and a problem or a problem has been huge. So caring feeds the gator. Is that the conclusion? Caring is one of the big things that feeds the gator. (laughs) Okay. I'm really glad we got there because I think that rings the bell for a lot of people listening. So tell us, is there any other way that leaders like that you've learned that and even like with your students to get them to pay attention and to be engaged and to ask questions and take notes and be present? What are some of the ways that you've learned that we haven't talked about that really feed the gator beyond what you just mentioned? It might be helpful for people listening if I just get super tactical here and talk about the world of virtual meetings, because I was one of the many teachers who got thrown suddenly thrust into virtual teaching in March of 2020 and have to figure out. And I have always valued student engagement very, very highly as a teacher. The class that I teach is the most popular class at the business school at Yale. And so you can imagine I put a ton of effort Mm -hmm. into it, creating an engaged, active, inclusive classroom. 
Something that most people still don't realize is that when you are leading a virtual meeting, cold calling is really important. And you might think of your scary professors back in college Mm -hmm. who are putting people on the spot and it's absolutely terrifying and you're going to be shamed in front of everyone how much you don't know. And all I really mean is instead of asking an open-ended question to a group in a virtual environment where you ask a question, but then everyone's waiting for each other and the energy just fizzles out and dies, you call on people by name. So Mark, what do you think about that? And to help people feel more comfortable with this, you can do warm calling where you let people know you're going to ask them for their thoughts on it. So you bring up a topic and you say, I'd like to hear from this person, this person, and this person in a minute. And so then people know that they're on deck. Another thing to help people stay engaged that most people don't do in group meetings is invite people. And this is especially if you have a large team or this is a big group of people where it's more people than you can see on the screen. And so then some people are going to think that others don't know if they're present and all of us have a temptation to multitask. So they're going to be tempted to, you know, be on email or whatever other thing. I encourage people all the time to use the chat function as much as they want to chat with other people on topic, off topic, make jokes, ask and answer each other's questions and just channel their multitasking energy into the meeting that you're in. And then the third final super tactical granular thing is it makes a huge difference if you smile. And when I have TAs who are helping me host classes and online workshops and things, I actually let them know that part of our job as hosts for this meeting or this event is that we smile and other people can see us smile and it just really helps them feel good. And it's kind of silly, but it makes a big difference. I'm so glad I asked you this question and I'm so glad you pivoted into the tactical because like, I actually wrote them down. I'm anxious to share those ideas with people because people tell me all the time how much they hate these calls. And there was just research that came out the other day that actually showed that, you know, we really shouldn't be on that many of them anyway, that, you know, right. But nevertheless, I would imagine most managers are going to keep doing it. And these are really great, helpful hints, but really drill down into how you as a professor and i.e. people listening as leaders can have greater influence with their people, which is the whole focus of this conversation. So thank you. I want to transition. You say that the bedrock principle of influencing behavior is that people like to take the path of least resistance. This idea, by the way, has come up with several of the future guests that I'm having. They've actually Mm -hmm. made the same point. And so but they didn't express it the way you did, which is that ease makes people happy and effort can really piss people off. So tell us how leaders can apply this knowledge to become more influential. If all you did as a business leader was to embrace the idea that whatever you want people to do, whether it's employees or customers or colleagues, friends, family, anybody, When you want to influence someone's behavior, make it as easy as possible for them to follow through and then be innovating and asking yourself constantly, how can I make it even easier than that? And how can I make it even easier than that? This might be the best thing that you could do for you and your business. Give me an example. Yeah. So when you talk about 
Ease makes people happy. Effort can really piss people off. Right now, I am trying to sell the car that I bought three weeks ago because it is such a pain in the butt to own this beautiful Ford Mach-E electric vehicle because there's so many little things that make it difficult. That And I'm embarrassed. I'm somebody who cares so much about the environment. I was glad to purchase an electric vehicle. However, the charging when I'm on the road, taking a road trip is a huge pain in the butt to figure out when you have to do it. You find a charger, you're waiting there for like 40 minutes, the mental taxation of the calculation of when and where you're going to do the charging is crazy. And then just for me, my garage is actually not quite big enough to fit the car comfortably. So I have to listen every time I pull in and out of the garage to all of the warnings going off, telling me that I'm going to crash. crash the wall. Right. Yeah. And they're so, so tiny. And I spent, you know, $50,000 on this car. And yet these kinds of what people might think of as hygiene factors have a bigger influence on behavior than anything. When you make it easy for somebody to follow through, it doesn't have to be that they want to because you're making it effortless and then it just becomes the mindless territory of the gator. So if you just think of Amazon as an example of a company that iconically has done well in this area, almost every single innovation they've had that's been successful has been on this dimension of ease, saying, how could we make it easier? How could we make it easier than that? So listeners, I'm sure you can think of them, but for example, Alexa, Prime, one-click shopping, easy returns, almost every single thing that makes it now harder not to shop at Amazon than it is to shop at Amazon. And so same day delivery. Same day I mean, delivery. they just keep taking it. Yes. Yeah. So what's a real world example of like you as a manager asking an employee to do something? How can you make work easier for someone or to take away the friction the way you just described it in buying your car? So like a little thing would be expense reports that managers spend a crazy amount of time on. In some companies, there is someone else who's responsible for putting the expense report together. And we get to have this at Yale. It's really nice. So I use my corporate card, buying the stuff that I need to buy. And then someone comes to me and they have a report already put together. And they just say, hey, Zoe, when do you have 15 minutes that we could just go through and you could verbally tell me what those expenses were? And oh, you lost your receipt, which I do all the time. Okay, no problem. I'll call that restaurant. I'll call the whatever and I'll get a new receipt. So I spend hardly any of my time doing expense reports, but I have a lot of friends who are managers who spend hours and hours every month working on expense reports. And that's time that they should be spending doing the things they do well, but it's also time that they're spending hating their job. Mm, you're right. You're exactly right. Just the way you hate your car right now. Yeah. And the funny thing is you love the car or you wouldn't have bought it's it. a beautiful right? car. And so you could love your job, but it gets to the point where it just becomes so frustrating that it just wears you down. So that's a very good example. There's another takeaway from your book. It's just this simple insight that you said that the easiest thing to become more influential is just to ask. And I mentioned this in the introduction, but in your book, you say that people who ask for what they want get better grades, more raises and promotions, bigger job opportunities, and even more orgasms. <laughs> so 
This might seem obvious, but it isn't. So tell us about this, remembering, of course, this is a family show. Okay, so we'll leave that last part to people's gator brain imagination. It sounds so ridiculously simple, like you and I shouldn't even have to talk about, oh, it's so important to just ask. People come and take workshops and classes with me at Yale. After a seven-week boot camp class with me where we have gone so deep in the science and practiced all these strategies, it's crazy that at the end of the class, when I ask each person to come up and share what was the most impactful thing for you, the biggest one is usually just ask. And I mention this because if you're hearing this and saying, well, duh, I challenge you to start doing it more often. And when you start doing it more often, more consciously, then you realize how much you haven't been doing it as often as you could have. You haven't asked as many people as you could have. You haven't asked for as much as you could have because you had all of these subconscious barriers that didn't even have it occur to you to ask for all these things that you could have asked for. And the most dramatic example of asking that I've personally observed was a couple of students in my class a few years ago playing this game called the bigger and better game where you take something tiny like a paperclip and you just trade it up with people. It's an asking practice game. So anyone can play this for fun. And you ask somebody, hey, I have this paperclip. Would you trade it for me for something bigger and better? And then they say yes or no. You make as many trades as you want. And in class, we do this for up to a week. And then people bring the biggest, best thing that they got. And these two students traded between a Monday and a Thursday in just 10 trades, starting with a paperclip. And they ended up with a car just by asking. They got a car from a car dealership in our town. And the thing before that was a painting. A new car? Or it was a used like, car. It was, okay. it was a used car, but it was a working used car that they gave away to a refugee family who had moved to New Haven from Afghanistan. The mom, she had been an accountant. She was working in a factory in New Haven, and she was taking the bus two hours every day to get to work. So it made a huge difference for them. So how did they accomplish that? It's wonderful. But how do you take a paperclip and 10 trades to a you car? You literally just ask. That's why I'm sharing this story. And when you just ask, there are many different ways that you can ask. The most important thing is that you ask compared to not asking. But the big message of the book is that becoming influential Becoming someone that people want to say yes to is a process of self-transformation and that ultimately what's more important than people saying yes to you every time you try to ask or get something is that they want to say yes. And these students, Manis and Tom, were examples of people that people wanted to say yes to. And they would go like... It happened to be Halloween, and so they happened to be wearing animal onesies for part of the trading <laughs> escapades. And they got people excited with this vision of, of something that was crazy. Nobody thought, including them, that they could actually trade up for a car. And they got people excited to be part of this game that was fun, and there was a vision for something big, maybe achievable. And they were sharing, we want to do something great for somebody. And so we want to trade up for a car and we're going to give the car away. And you could be part of 
this exciting game and a lot of people wanted to be part of it. But they put an exciting dimension onto it. So they didn't just say, hey, I have a paperclip, would you trade for a car, obviously. But what they did do was to say, we're engaged in this exercise and we want to do something really great, but the greatness is really what happens with whatever we land with. So whatever we can trade up for, the bigger and better it is, then the outcome is going to be that we're going to give that away to somebody as a gift that would really you know, be the beneficiary, whether they sell it, in this case, they use it to drive. That's kind of the way they did it. So they put a spin on it that made people really excited, which is a really cool dimension of influence, if I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah, and they were exemplifying their style and framing was exemplifying visionary servant leadership in a sort of quirky domain. But this is exactly what we're trying to do as leaders and visionaries is we share this awesome big dream that's always going to be bigger than us. And it's always going to be about serving somebody. And we lay it out in a way that other people want to be part of it and they want to be included. And they are then more willing to invest a great deal of their time, their money, their energy, their social capital, even more than we can actually pay back to them. And that's part of the reason we practice the bigger and better game is to let go of our hangups about reciprocity, that we always have to be able to pay people back. Mm. We, we don't. When we have a vision, we don't. Wow. That's really powerful. So the first hurdle is just getting over our hangups about asking people. But then you mentioned outrageous asks. So tell us about what's an outrageous ask and why we should be asking them. So an outrageous ask is just anything that you can't imagine really getting. And I ask students to practice one of their weekly challenges is just making an outrageous ask. And the reason why we do this, so that, well, there are multiple reasons. I guess the first reason is just to expand your comfort zone. And the more you practice asking and then asking for things that kind of, especially it's helpful, but it kind of scares you to ask for this thing that's so big. If you are asking for things that are so big that you don't always get them, that's a signal that you're playing big. If you always get what you ask for, that's a bad sign. It means that you're playing small. But what ends up happening just overall with students who are making these outrageous asks, they ask for more than they expect to get. About a third of the time, they get that crazy thing, which is shocking. So that's mm -hmm. reason enough to do it. But then the psychology behind this is that, and this was something that was first made famous by Bob Cialdini, who wrote a book called Influence, which is a Bible for people who are studying this stuff. I love it. But he wrote about how if you ask for something that's crazy big and people say no, what happens is then if you ask for something smaller, they're much more likely to say yes to it than if you hadn't asked for that initial huge thing. So that's a second reason, or actually, I guess that's a third reason now to practice making outrageous asks. And overall, it just turns out when you start practicing this, that you don't know what's outrageous for somebody else. You have no idea what they might be willing to say yes to. And my students and I get shocked all the time. And it's kind of like an Aikido move on yourself where you get to flip a switch of your own neurosis that's scared of failure, which all of us have, where you get to code failure as a sign that you're on the right path. So when you're making an outrageous ask, 
you're expecting to fail. And then when you do, which most of the time you do, you go, yes, I'm making big enough asks that I'm not just playing small and doing what's easy. Is our big fear that people are going to go, what are you, nuts? I mean, they're going to think we're, you know, not fully there by asking for something really outrageous. Is that sort of the reason that we don't ask for them? Probably more than them thinking that we're stupid, they'll think that we're greedy. And so I'm glad that you're asking about this because the way that we ask and asking with warmth and enthusiasm and in a personal way where you show that you are not at all feeling entitled is an important part of this. If you make a huge ask of somebody and they think that you feel you have the right to it, they want to say no, right? An outrageous ask that I share with my students and we play a video from the Jimmy Kimmel show is when Shaquille O'Neal is on his show and Shaquille O'Neal is saying he's a big tipper and when he goes out to restaurants, he likes to say at the beginning, listen, I like to get good service and at the end of the meal, I'm going to ask you how much tip you want. And so, of course, I'm sure he gets good service and then at the meal, he asks the waiter how much tip do they want and he gives them that tip. And so Jimmy Kimmel asks him, Shaq, what's the biggest amount that anyone ever asked for? And Shaq says it's (laughs) $4,000. Somebody took your class. (laughs) So will you usually get $4,000? No, but you will definitely not get $4,000 if you didn't ask for it. That's absolutely fantastic. Can I share one more? Yes, please do. One more thing about asking that's that's so important for us to think about as leaders is the other side and how asking is so unequal, not just randomly, but definitely unequal between people who are more and less privileged and people who feel they have more and less power, also gender. In this study I share in the book by Jessica Kalarkos, she's a sociologist. She goes and observes students in a school and she's counting which students are asking for help, homework extensions, leniency and punishments, things like this. And what she's looking at is, is there a difference between middle-class students and working-class students, uh, their families? And I guess this comes back to the beginning of our conversation. And she finds that students from middle-class families are seven times more likely to ask than students from the working-class families are. Because most students from middle-class families have parents who are teaching them that in order to get ahead, you need to be advocating for yourself in one way or another. And most students who have backgrounds where their parents don't come from so much privilege, they work really, really hard. And what they're teaching their kids is you need self-reliance. And you have to work really hard. And then there's this expectation that your hard work will be noticed and rewarded. But unfortunately, it's not nearly enough. Wow. So as a leader, know that when somebody's asking you, that's a cue. When one of your employees is asking you for some kind of privilege or exception or leniency, that's a sign to think about, can I, should I? give whatever I'm granting to them to all of the other people who didn't think to ask for it. So don't be a leader who makes other people ask you because then you will be reinforcing all of these differences, inequalities, difference in privilege and things like that. So if somebody asks you for something, you apply it and say, even though they didn't ask, I'm going to give it to everybody else. Is that what exactly. You're, that's fantastic. Exactly. That is a very, very good leadership example. 
I want to go back to something you said about Robert Caldini's book and his advice. If you ask something outrageous, then you can step back and ask something, something less outrageous where people are willing to, like you say, would you give me a million dollars? No. Would you give me five dollars? Oh, okay. (laughs) Is that manipulative? It depends how you do it and how often you do it. And I'm really glad you asked because this is not something that you can practice again and again and again with the same person. This is something that in any of your close relationships, don't do this on a regular basis. In stranger relationships where you're meeting somebody doing business arm's length for the first time or something like that, that's a better situation to make these outrageous asks. But in your close relationships, what you can do that's very similar and it's not manipulative at all is you can tell those people what your dream is, what you are hoping for, and what would be absolutely amazing. And you're not asking them to do this outrageous thing that you don't expect them to do, but you are giving them the opportunity to think about stepping up, doing more, being more generous with you than they might have. And it weirdly happens that sometimes asking people for more than you would have thought to shows that you are seeing them as someone with great skills, capabilities, someone who can do a lot. So if you're thinking about asking your boss or asking your employee for something that's beyond what you imagine the scope is, that doesn't have to be a big thing. Just make sure that there is no shred of entitlement or expectation in that ask. Okay, so give us a real-world example in a workplace. How would you do this? Yeah, I want to share a story that relates to one of my favorite influence techniques, which I call the magic question. And this also helps illustrate this topic that we're talking about. And the magic question is super simple. It's a lot of people's favorite tools that I teach because it's so easy. And we've talked about how everybody loves to do things that are easy. And this is a situation that was going on in a the company that I interned with when I was an MBA student, which is a medical device called Guidant. And the person who was, she's number two to the CEO, her name is Ginger Graham. And she's the person who needed to ask or tell employees to do something crazy. And this is this is an outrageous ask, but she really wanted and needed them to follow through, which was to work three shifts a day. Everybody's working overtime over the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays in order to meet demand, which was vastly outstripping supply with this new medical device. So... You can imagine as a leader going to your employees and saying, hey, I know this is the time when all of you want to take vacation and take time off and be with your families, but actually, I need you to step it up. This is not going to go well. But the way that she framed this ask, besides, of course, you have to give people money, is so respectfully with the magic question. The magic question is just, what would it take? She comes to the employees and she just says, what would it take? for you to feel good about coming into work, working overtime during these Christmas holidays. What is it going to take for us to have you happy to be here? And the employees feel respected. So this is the first part of that's magic about the magic question. And so they don't have so much resistance when they feel respected. She's also acknowledging she doesn't have as much 
information as they do. They're the experts on their situation, their obstacles, all of that. And this is magic because so often it takes a lot less than you would have expected. In this particular case, the employees said, yes, obviously you have to give us some money and were really stressed about our commutes. Buses don't run at night. We need taxi fare. We are hungry. We like pizza. And we're stressed about wrapping our Christmas presents. So would you please hire a Christmas present wrapper? <laughs> so she she does all of these things and they together create this environment where she has engaged employees putting in more hours than they've ever put in. They hit record production numbers and they're able to meet these orders and everybody ends up with, I think it was a 30% bonus at the end of the year. And most importantly, they feel great. So these are the kind of employees who are not going to immediately leave and be looking for outside opportunities because they feel excited to be there. So this was an outrageous ask, but I know she expected them to say yes, partly because she's giving them a lot of money. But they wouldn't have said yes if she'd framed it up the way you did it originally. You know, I need you people to step up here, you know. Yeah. And what was really important was that she understood that it's not just whether they say yes, but they need to want to say yes. Did they, just curiosity, not to get into the weeds here, but did they give some people the ability to opt out? Like if there were people, I haven't been in my family for five years for Thanksgiving and we're going to be together and I can't work. Did they give some people that freedom or did they require everybody to work no matter what? I haven't talked to her about it, but I've got to assume that a leader like that, you can't mandate people to work overtime and do this. But I imagine that the incentives were there that are shared among the people who do the extra work. You know, as I think about every time I read a book, my goal is if I can take at least one idea from this, it's worth all the time. Right. And I have the same attitude about this podcast, which is if my audience can take one really powerful idea from this, this is going to be really worth their while. And this idea that what you call the magic question, which is fantastic, what would it take is so wonderful for so many reasons. Thank you for sharing that. That's really yeah. fantastic. Thank you. Can I share just a couple more things about that? Because this really should be the one thing, listener, that you do take away from this podcast. Not what you just said. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, no, no, exactly. The magic question. Oh, okay. Just two more things on this that will help you be even more likely to do it. One is that when somebody has given you that roadmap to success, then they are giving you their implied support. So let's say you're asking your boss, what would it take for me to get to the next level? Or what would it take for me to be at the top of the salary band? Of course, your boss gives you the roadmap. And then when you come back and you say, okay, here's what's happened and here's what I've done, just like you said, your boss absolutely will do what they can to help you get that raise or promotion. And secondly, use a magic question in almost any situation. It's a great question to use in a context where you're going to give some critical feedback to help somebody save face. So instead of saying, you need to fix this, what happened? You really messed that one up. To ask, what would it take for that thing not to happen again? And then this employee can stay engaged rather than being ashamed and angry at you for making them feel bad. That's really fantastic. Really, really fantastic. Thank you. As you mentioned, you teach, I had in my mind, a hugely popular class, but it's the most popular class of influence at the Yale Business School, a school of management. And 
undoubtedly you introduce your students to every idea you've included in the book and everything we've talked about. You know, Mark, I don't. The book actually goes into far more detail than the class does, which is kind of exciting. And it was a blast for me to write the book for that reason. Zoe, let's stop here for a moment. And listeners, we'll be right back after this very brief message. Hi, Paul from Mitel again. A huge part of developing a supportive corporate culture is communicating to our customers, our employees, and all other stakeholders. At Mitel, our job is to make communication easier, more convenient, more efficient through technology. We're proud to be the sole sponsor of the Lead from the Heart podcast and its message of empathy and caring, not to mention safe, open, and honest communication. Again, if you'd like to learn more about Mitel, you can find us at mitel.com forward slash mark, M-A-R. So we have a podcast tradition where we briefly break away from the discussion and transition into what we've cleverly called the heartbeat round. And what I'd like to do is ask you a dozen or so more personal questions and have you answer these with a quick and instinctive answer. In other words, in a heartbeat. Are you game? I am game, Mark. (laughs) All right, here we go. The most underestimated and undervalued leadership trait of all. Kindness. Pure or false. You named your daughter Ridley after a famous cognitive scientist and researcher. False. I named my daughter Ripley after the Ellen Ripley character in the movie Aliens. Wow. (laughs) I did not see that coming because you mentioned this top researcher named Ridley. I was like, wow, she's really inspired by this work that she named her daughter. But (laughs) I totally got it all wrong. The strategy you use to support your mental health personally. Every time I'm feeling bad in my mind and my emotions, I try to take care of it physically. So it might be exercise, it might be laughing, it might be other things that aren't so family friendly. One book that profoundly shaped who you'd go on to become. Bob Cialdini's book, Influence, was one of the reasons that I left my job as a brand manager at Barbie and joined academia to do research. That book has come up a lot, and it is a magnificent book, Um, and we've mentioned it several times, so thank you. The quality that derails the most leadership careers, in your opinion? This is not just for women, but especially for women, I would say self-doubt. That's actually never come up, so thank you. Mm -hmm. Love the way you frame that. A prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come through. Eventually, leadership will be automated, but not within our lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) A subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on. Improvisation. Improv theater. By the way, somewhere I read that you acted in, were you in a movie or a play? Yeah, I used to do a lot of theater and a little bit of movies. And uh, that was how I got out of my shyness that was almost incapacitating as a child. Wow, that's amazing. Someone well-known who you admire greatly for their ability to influence. This would be Darren Brown, who's from the UK. He's a celebrity mentalist. If you have no idea who he is, you could watch a tiny YouTube video called Paying with Paper. And if you love that, then watch his longer one called The Apocalypse. That's his favorite and my favorite show he's done. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Laughter. Your synonym for the word heart. Vulnerability. One major workplace change you're certain is going to happen globally post-COVID. We're going to be more patient and forgiving of one another when personal things come up that make it impossible for us to do our work how we're supposed to. I hope you're right. And a cultural value every organization should have. Inclusiveness or inclusivity. 
No surprise. You had wonderful answers. So thank you for going through that with me, Zoe. Is there one thing that we haven't covered that you really want our audience to know and take away? The big ones for me is what would it take? And then just ask and ask big. Those are the sort of the main takeaways so far. But is there something that you just really want to make sure everybody takes away? And by the way, might inspire them to pick up your book. I guess the one other thing is if you choose, actually, no matter whether you choose to practice the asking part, you might also choose to practice saying no. And the more you practice saying no, the more comfortable you become with other people saying no to you. And when that happens, it's a personal transformation where your asks lose that edge of neediness that can be repulsive to other people. Wow. Actually, I can apply that to a a certain situation in my life. Great. (laughs) But let me just say, on behalf of my audience, you present these ideas in such a joyful and exciting way that just makes it really great to listen to you. So on behalf of my audience, Zoe, thank you so very much for joining me and best of success with your book. Thank you. You are so incredibly kind and warm and fun to talk to. And my gator brain is super duper happy. (laughs) All right. Best to you. Thanks for sharing that. See ya. Take care, Mark. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. Some final thoughts as we leave. You know, we all know that the Great Resignation is no longer an American phenomenon. It's a truly global one. And we surely know that millions of people are quitting jobs ostensibly to earn a bigger paycheck. But the truth is people tend to stay in jobs and companies when they feel greatly supported by their managers and leaders. So if your organization is looking for help in restoring employee loyalty, engagement, and even productivity, please keep me in mind as either a consultant or as a keynote speaker. I would really love to help you. As always, I want to thank my team, including Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Susan DeRoche, and my producer, Eric Oz. Our theme song is Take the A-Train by Billy Strayhorn and performed by the extraordinary BBC Big Band Orchestra. And finally, I leave you with my two constant reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And be sure to love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.